Pop Health Week on Healthcare Now Radio. I'm your co-host and executive producer, Greg Masters, the managing director of Health Innovation Media. Joining me in our state-of-the-art virtual studio is the co-founder and principal co-host of Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, who also serves as president of Accountable Health, LLC. We designed Pop Health Week as a conversational platform where industry leaders and stakeholders from various sectors, such as payers, providers, patient vendors, and regulatory communities, can converge to share best practices and strategies in population health. To connect with us, visit www.popupstudio.productions or follow and direct message me on Twitter via at Greg Masters MPH, and remember that is Greg with a double G, or Fred Goldstein on Twitter via at FS Goldstein or www.accountablehealthllc.com. On today's show, our guest is John E. Frank, MD, Assistant Professor of Clinical Otolaryngology at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. Dr. Frank is the author of Two Minute Warning, Winning at the Game of Male Hair Loss. And now, without further ado, I hand over the reins to Fred, so take it away. Thanks so much, Greg and John. Welcome to Pop Health Week. Great to be here. Yeah, it's a pleasure to get you on. I got a chance to meet you at the conference uh, about a week or so ago. You closed it out with a great presentation. Why don't you start? Give us a little bit about your background. I mean, it was really great to meet you. Um, you know, I, I attend conferences, medical-based conferences from time to time, whether they're my own specialty. I'm originally, uh, uh, I'm a board-certified otolaryngologist, head and neck surgeon, and trained in skull-based surgery, where I did a fellowship and finished at Columbia University in New York. Um, and was trained in facial plastic surgery, and I still maintain a, a, an appointment there. Um, and and um, and then I've I've evolved into from facial plastic surgery and skull base surgery to hair restoration and treating all forms of hair restoration. Of course, as a facial specialist, um, I'm I'm comfortable in my office. We're we're adept at um, eyebrow transplants and beard and mustache transplants. What comes across from time to time. And, uh, and be, beyond that, I was a, uh, you know, a professional athlete um, in my younger days. And um, I'm originally, go, so we're going in reverse chronological order. And then originally from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I grew up, I was one of four kids in, uh, in a suburban uh, Pittsburgh home, three sisters. And uh, my father was a lawyer. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. And uh, it was all about sports and uh, hoping eventually to go to medical school. I was a big uh, Pittsburgh Steelers fan and a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. And um, I ended up going to Ohio State for uh, on a football scholarship. Was a Big Ten and All-American athlete there and uh, got into medical school. I, I was uh, applying for a Rhodes Scholarship. Ohio State hadn't had a Rhodes Scholarship. And so I was one of the first uh, in a batch of people that were being promoted for that and got to the got to the deep end of the interviews and um, and then the next year we actually produced a Rhodes Scholar. Wow. I went to medical school. Yeah, I went to medical school. Uh, was drafted into the NFL and um, and was doing an independent study program in medical school during my first year of uh, of the NFL, where uh, the stars aligned. I was, of course, I was playing amongst uh, the super of all superstars, uh, Jerry Rice and Ronnie Lott and Joe Montana and a whole cast of. Uh, just uh, gifted athletes, and we won a couple Super Bowls, and uh, and I was uh, 
five-year career and then i and then i hung it up to go finish medical school and ultimately go into uh ent uh, i i have a home in in columbus ohio and a practice in columbus and also a practice in new york city and i'm a uh a proud and loyal husband and father that's awesome. so that's it in a nutshell that's <laughs> quite the nutshell it takes quite a big shell to, to encompass all that it's fascinating to think you know going to medical school i guess it's sort of virtually in a sense at that time and at the same time playing in the nfl well i mean you know ohio state has a has a really a world-class um clinical um program for for medical school and and i finished at columbia and and throughout my dozen or so years of formal medical training um, much of the clinical stuff I learned and I, I, I'm on par. I think I, you know, the surgical skills that I developed in my, uh, clinical acumen was, was at the highest level. It came with, with, uh, a lot of struggle and failure and, uh, and, and such. Um, but at the end, when I, when I finally, uh, uh got into practice, boy, uh, I, I was really, really, uh, special and had, had, a when I was practicing traditional medicine and ear, nose and throat and doing, uh, everything and pediatric, uh, ears, nose and throat and, uh, and, uh, cancers and facial plastic surgery. I was re I really had a lot of skills, but a lot of the, a lot of the clinical things that I learned, the basics, the, uh, the ABCs I learned in, in medical school at Ohio state. What was really nice about that program is they had an independent study program. So that first year of medical school is all classroom. And for people like uh, me or that have other hobbies, they um, designed an independent study program and I was allowed to play in the NFL and came back in the off seasons and studied the basic sciences, the uh, microbiology, pharma pharmacology, um, um, physiology um, and, and uh, behavioral sciences and things all, all from textbooks and um, occasional mentoring and, and, and things like that. But I was able to finish a year of that while playing in the NFL. Nowadays, there've been a couple people since me, but I think I was maybe been the first one to do that. So um, I, you know, I was on, on, on one half of the year playing in the NFL had, had, you know, a lot of hard work, but had the opportunity for an amazing, uh, you know, social events and uh, in, in the limelight and on stage and meeting dignitaries and, and, um, the fame and the fortune that came along with it. So that was a big, big, uh, uh, that was on fire. And then the other half of the year, I was, uh, you know, first year medical student uh, studying and learning. And, and at times when we did have our clinical rotations, uh, you know, dis you know, cleaning bedpans from disimpacting bowels. <laughs> so, you know, so from really one extreme, one extreme to the other and, 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 um, it was really, you know, the spectrum of everything, um, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and like I said, I, you know, I really struggled with the first couple of years and it took, it took a long time. It took years to get back to uh, a super high level, um, you know, which I consider myself today. Yeah. And it was fascinating. I know I asked you this question at the conference as you're sitting here playing football, which obviously results in injuries, et cetera. You want to be a plastic surgeon. And yet your hands, you know, I'm thinking, gosh, what about your hands? And uh, you actually had an incident, I guess. And that sort of was it, right? You know, when you're when you're 19 or 20 or in your early <laughs> 20s and you're uh, playing big time college football or you're in uh, in the NFL, you really feel like you're invincible. 
Um, and all it takes is one serious, uh, you know, injury to, to uh, make you realize that, uh, that, that you are mortal. And, um, you know, I was very lucky that I, I never had that serious uh, neck injury, which, uh, you know, ultimately can leave somebody paralyzed, something I have feared. Every, every time I tied my cleats and put on my helmet and shoulder pads, I always was aware that that was, you're always one hit away from being um, in a wheelchair. So that's a scary, very, a very serious side of playing in the NFL. But I seemed to be able to have good luck and uh, had my bruises and, and, and minor fractures. And uh, if, I could, uh, if I could be so bold as to say a concussion here and a concussion there. Um, but it wasn't until my fifth year in the NFL that I had a hand fracture. And they, they, they took me into the, uh, the medical clinic right inside, right underneath the the time was Candlestick Stadium is where the, the Niners used to play. And, and deep within the corridors underneath the stands, you could hear the, the fans stumping their feet above you. They had a, an x-ray machine. You know, it must have been from uh, one of the first uh, x-ray machines from the early uh, 20th century. <laughs> and, uh, but they took a picture of my hands and, and I was in my first year of medical school and the technician looked at, looked at, and we both looked at it on the viewer. And you could see the, you could see it looked like uh, branches of a, of a, of a limbs of a tree that were just going in different directions. Like, holy, oh my God, my, my hand was, uh, it wasn't pretty. And uh, I walked back down to the sidelines and I think we're in the third quarter of a game against the Detroit Lions. And, and, you know, it's very intense. I mean, you watch an NFL football game and you're on, you know, watching on television or if you're in the stands, it's, you know, it's screaming, and uh, if especially in a close game, which this one was, uh, it's it's tunnel vision. Everybody's got their eyes on that 50-yard line or wherever the ball is. So I walked back onto the sidelines, and my hand was in a my arm was in, my whole arm was in a sling, and and the team physician was there, and I was holding the X-ray in my other hand in my other hand, and uh, I showed it to the team physician, and he just looked at it and he's like, "Yeah, that's uh, you've got some fractures there," and. Um, the team trainer walked over and, and said, well, um, you know, there's only 49 men on this roster. This was really like a war, Fred. I mean, this was like uh, being <laughs> in a battlefield. Said, there's only 49 guys on the roster. There's only one other tight end. Um, probably can't catch passes. I'm like, duh. It's like, but um, why don't we wrap it up? You can still block. And, and I thought to myself, you know, I had been through – by then, I was in my in my fourth season, so that's four years of my high school was a was a was a high high level football, mm -hmm. and Ohio State is, State is 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 that's almost like the NFL, and so I'd been through situations, you know, sprain an ankle or uh, or hyperextend or to, to, you know a little, just get back out there and play and forget about it. At this time, I saw that X-ray in my in my on the vision and in my mind's eye and the game, and I was in my fit and I was fallen behind in medical school and they said well let's just you know can you can can't you just tape it up and we'll put a, a quick quick splint on it and we'll get you out there for the fourth quarter and it was the first time in 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 ever in my career that i said i i i'm not doing this wow. I, I i'm not i'm not and i had never once fred they i mean i can't tell you how many times i was knocked down on the field and i was never once um I never stayed on the field. It was just a personal sort of a, 
a personal um, obligation that I had to myself, a vow that I made. I was never going to ever lay down on football field. And I mean, there was one time, two times I can recall. Once I was playing in college against um, in Ohio State, we're playing Northwestern, which was, um, you know, a team we always we always rolled. And <laughs> and so they had a little chip on their shoulder, I think. And I I I stretched out for a pass, and and one of their safeties just just put his shoulder down and hit me right in the solar plexus, right, right below my rib cage. And he caught me perfectly. And I, and I fell on the ground and honest to God, I, I couldn't, I could not catch a breath. And, um, I, fortunately the, the, in, with the wide hash marks in college, we were only about five yards from our sideline. I just crawled on my hands and knees to the bench and, and passed out. It was like a battlefield. Wow. And, uh, and, um, so that was probably the hardest hit that I, that I ever had. And there were other ones I knew I was, I, mm -hmm. so that, that's still to this day, I probably have PTSD from just thinking back <laughs> to that. And, and so, um, but there were other times when, mm -hmm. when, uh, you know, you had to get back out on the field. I came back, that was in the first half I came back and played, but that incident with my hand fracture and falling behind in my medical studies was the, the writing was on the wall. Yeah. And, uh, and I took that opportunity to say no. And, um, and I sat out the rest of the game. And then on that Monday or Tuesday morning, I was, uh, on a gurney getting ready for, uh, open reduction, internal fixation of metacarpal fractures in my left hand. Wow. We put a couple pins in it. And, uh, and I, I did play out the rest of the season after the cast came off. And sure enough, I was, I was an integral part of that team. We, we won out or we won six of the remaining seven games I played. And I think we got in on the wild card. We won all the playoff games and we won the Super Bowl. And at that point, I was really at the top of my game. Um, but uh, I knew that I, I, I wasn't going to be a long, long, much longer. So I, I, I told the 49ers just in time for the NFL draft that they could draft a tight end because uh, I was very fond and still am of the, uh, the family that owns the 49ers, the, the Bartolos and the Yorks. Bartolos, yeah. Yeah. And I, I, and the whole team, I didn't want them to be hanging without a tight end. So they drafted a tight end. And, um, and uh, once again, you're humbled, you know, you talk about being humbled as I was with that hand injury. Um, I, we won out when I played that last season, we won every game, six, uh, almost seven or eight of the last nine games. I, I really thought that I was the, uh, the cog that turned the wheel until I retired. And the next year they, uh, the 49ers, they, they were, they were so, they were so stricken without me that they beat Denver in the Super Bowl 55 to 10 and one of the most lopsided victories ever. So uh... for those just tuning in, we are in the company of John E. Frank, MD, assistant professor of clinical otolaryngology at Columbia university college of physicians and surgeons. Dr. Frank is the author of Two Minute Warning, Winning at the Game of Male Hair Loss. Let's let's move on a little bit now because the football is great. We can discuss that the whole time. But I got a chance. You actually gave me your book, The Two Minute Warning, um, which was really fascinating. You know, I hadn't thought about hair loss much. It's really not something that we in population health might get into too much. But it really was interesting to read because there's a lot more to this than I really thought about. So why don't you talk a little bit about that? why you chose to write the book and then let's get into it a little bit. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, hair restoration and hair loss, as we, we may have talked about earlier, I can't remember if we were chatting about it before, but um, 
Hair loss is on the surface. It, it, when I first came into medicine, it was the, uh, oh gosh, sort of the uh, the less respected part of, of, of medicine and surgery. And when I made the, the commitment to be a hair restoration surgeon, I, I always felt like I was going to be uh, the black sheep. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and so, um, but it's come a long way. It's certainly a lot more um, intricate and complicated and, and dynamic that I had ever expected. And I think anybody that knows it from a professional level realizes that just how technical it is. And, and beyond the actual mechanics and the technical aspects of doing hair transplant, loss is, is different than any other plastic surgery, I believe, in that the, the, the hair loss is ongoing. And, and so what, what you may look like today is probably going to be very different than what you're going to look like in 5, 10, 20, or however many years down the line. And it's so important to take that into consideration. And uh, anybody that's suffering from hair loss and has researched it will certainly come across the majority of doctors and clinics offering free consultations for hair transplant. And these are really nothing more than, than, than sales jobs. And, and I, I say that with, um, I say it confidently, but also um, realizing that that may, you know, offend uh, many of my colleagues in the industry. But I think if they're very honest and were to have a one-on-one a -on -one conversation with me, they'd realize that whether they're doing that consultation or they have a salesperson or a, what they call a consultant in their office, it, it's truly an opportunity for them to really um, um, persuade that unfortunate or, or, or somewhat vulnerable young man or woman who has hair loss to, to get a transplant. And that's just not the way it should go. Um, there really should be honest advice. We charge, we charge, it's not a lot of money, but just to keep things honest, we charge a small amount of, uh, of money for that advice. And it keeps things, like I said, it, it keeps things honest um, and gives us a chance to explain if you may be a transplant candidate, because not everybody is. Everybody can get a transplant and most of the clinics will try to transplant everybody that walks in their door. But it's my, my philosophy and my commitment to really give people just great advice. If a transplant seems like it's going to be helpful, and that's up to me because I've been doing it for 25 years and I get a sense for what somebody's going to look like uh, down the line, then I'll recommend a transplant. And that could be a life-changing experience. It has been for many people. But for others, it can be a mistake, especially in younger guys, uh, particularly under the age of 25. And, and I think the hair, hair transplant uh, um, um, superstars realize that. But it's still very enticing because it's uh, it's uh, there's no third third party payment and and it's enticing to take advantage of the of that system. So we we never do that. I probably turn away or delay or offer some alternative to surgery for about a quarter of the people that that reach out to me. Uh, and I th and it's the best way to go. Uh, I've seen other I've seen other transplant surgeons uh, get in trouble. Um, um, just because there's there it like I said hair loss is ongoing and the and the supply of hair to donate to yourself is limited it's finite mm -hmm. and so whether it's finite whenever anything is finite you better make the best decisions about about what to do with those resources mm -hmm. and so um, that's the basic philosophy of how I I like to approach hair restoration hair transplant um, and surgical and non-surgical there's certainly some products many of the things on the market are snake oils um, and, and not going to help. Um, but there are some things which do help. Um, but that requires really, um, intensive conversation, knowing about people, not just how they feel about themselves physically, but how they feel about themselves emotionally. 
and and we start to talk about some of these lotions and post some work but uh again it's a very it's a very personal topic and 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 it's um a lot more than what most people would um um see on the on the surface so so it's it is it is intellectually stimulating um there there are very highly technical things when the hair follicle when you get down to the basic science and the um and the uh and the pathology and, and things um and and we've been st we're still the the bench researchers are certainly trying to make headway with hair multiplication and cloning and hair replication and things like that um but that's that's still been a a a holy grail in this field um and and there is technology i'm just not a big mm -hmm. fan of much of the technology that's out there because it tends to uh diminish the one-on-one -on -one care and sort of that high high touch aspect of of being a doctor which mm -hmm. i i first and foremost uh take pride in being great and uh, you know i should point out the book is called two minute warning winning the game of hair loss i left off that last part so if you're looking for it that's what it is and and also you talked about this a little bit was the idea of some of those things you can take beforehand you sort of mentioned it things like minoxidil or some of the others where are we with those do they work these things or what should people consider as they look at this well i i can tell you that in 25 years of being in this industry the majority of that being a hair transplant surgeon i've treated thousands if not tens of thousands of hair loss sufferers and um i don't recall one moment where somebody's burst into my office excited that that they've used minoxidil and it's been a big a big help to them a topical minoxidil in fact most of the time they're they're saying it uh it causes itchiness flakiness uh, dandruff uh, irritation um patchy uh sometimes seborrheic plaques can worsen so that's a big eye opener and it's somewhat risky for me to say that because it's a highly marketed and disseminated medicine i'm not even going to tell the designer name because i don't want uh mm. the the drug companies uh you know, on my back, on my backside for this, but I, I'm just being honest. It just doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, there are some, me, some instances where maybe one in a thousand where I see a particular thing where I'm like, let's put a little minoxidil and rub that on there a couple of times a day for six months. But other than that, now we are going back to the tablets minoxidil that, which was what it started out at, uh, until it was FDA approved back in 1983. When, when minoxidil was approved as a topical formula. Before that, it was a blood pressure medicine and, and the people that were taking for blood pressure were, were retaining hair and, and all. I don't have the clinical data, but I've been starting to use it with my, my, my practice for the last year or so. And people seem to be reporting pretty well on the oral 2.5 milligrams. So that's the first thing because it's really the most eye-opening. And if there are dermatologists listening, they, they probably get it. And, and they might wanna think twice about that knee-jerk reaction about saying, Oh, it's just hair loss today. Um, okay, well, let me fill out your chart. Go take some minoxidil. I don't think you should be doing that. Um, mm. The other, the other things, uh, the other thing I like is um, now there are there are now there's there's the something very much in vogue in the last few years is born out of um, orthopedic surgery joints and and burns and general surgery um, is the the um, the platelet um, rich plasma, and and so that can help with inflammation. Certainly shown that I think in 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 um, in joints, and we talked a little bit earlier. I think in chatting about um, rheumatoid arthritis and things, mm -hmm. and certainly with um, 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 burn burn victims and things, the platelets they have the growth factors, 
and um, they can have a direct impact on, on, on cellular growth. So that's great. That's exciting. Naturally, now people have been doing it for hair loss. I'm not a big fan of it, to be honest with you. I just haven't seen it working that well. Uh, it, it may help for a few months, but then every six months, um, you know, you're going to have to come in and get your blood drawn and get um, somewhat uh, uncomfortable injections. And, and it may help a little bit. Um, but it's certainly not going, and this is, I, you know, I, I really want to be unbiased, but I, I just being honest, that's just not going to give you the, if you have a bald spot, it's not going to put a follicle in there like a transplant will and, and minoxidil oral, the tablets aren't going to do that. The other thing is, um, um, somewhat, a, a little bit of a controversial medicine, finasteride, uh, also known as Propecia. I mean, the stuff works. So, so if you don't believe me and you think that I'm, uh, um, self-serving by telling you that minoxidil doesn't work. Uh, trust me, finasteride works. Unfortunately, it's got maybe a little bit of an overblown reputation um, for some of the, uh, the, the, the things that can happen in younger men in their intimate, intimate lives. But for guys my age and, 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 and over 35, I, I haven't seen that many side effects and I see it working and it's a tremendous, uh, tremendous resource and sometimes a supplement to transplants or sometimes a, um, a, a substitution for transplants. Um, Again, nothing will put hair in your scalp like putting hair in your scalp. Um, <laughs> but for 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 just thickening some of the hair you have, um, then finasteride is is a nice alternative. The other thing I like is is laser low level laser light uh, therapy. I, I found that I, I have a laser cap which I wear and sort of a spokesman for for that company or I'm a I'm a distributor of their of their prescription uh, grade uh, lasers. I wear one. I like it. You know, um, I never thought I'd, I'd, I'd see the day where the FDA would approve, uh, um, red light laser in the, in the red spectrum for hair growth. But, um, it seems to, it seems to increase the, um, the battery, you know, in, inside the cell there's, if you go back to your biology class and, and there's the, uh, AMP, uh, which, um, needs oxygen and, and not going to get into all those technical details, but there's a, uh, an ADP, excuse me, uh, uh, the the diphosphate, which goes through a triphosphate, and and so I think the laser turns some of that um, um, electrical energy into um, biological energy, and so I wear one. I like it. Mm -hmm. Those are really the main the main things. Now there are certainly dozens of other scalp conditions which you'd really just have to be seen by somebody competent in the field. Yeah. Sometimes there are some conditions which are just aren't treatable. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen these untreatable conditions getting uh, 15 and $20,000 hand transplants that just aren't going to work for them. Right. Um, so, so, you know, majority of times the hair loss is male pattern baldness, but uh, you should never ever agree to a hair transplant or let yourself be talked into one without seeing a doctor. Well, that's fantastic. We've sort of hit up on the end of this now, John, um, but it's just like other things in medicine. You want to find somebody who really knows what they're doing and understand the full situation. So thanks so much for joining us this week on Pop Health Week. It's been a pleasure. It's really my pleasure, Fred. It's so nice meeting you and, and I appreciate your um, good questions and thank you very much. It's my pleasure. And back to you, Greg. And there you have it, folks. That is the final word on today's broadcast. I extend my heartfelt thanks to John E. Frank, MD, Assistant Professor of Clinical Otolaryngology at Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons for his insights today. 
If you find our work at Pop Health Week engaging, please show your support by liking the show on your preferred podcast platform. Share it with your colleagues and subscribe to stay updated with new episodes as they're posted. We stream live on Healthcare Now Radio weekdays, 5.30 a.m., 1.30 p.m., and 9.30 p.m. Eastern. And for our friends on the West Coast, that's 2.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Pacific. From Pop Health Week, my co-host Fred Goldstein and myself, Greg Masters, we urge you all to stay safe. And until next time, farewell. Farewell.